Um, anyone ever heard of the story of David and Goliath? It's a fairly popular uh, story. And what I want to start out with this morning is just um, sort of that reality that context is really, really important when talking about David and Goliath. Because if we take the story out of its context, we end up with wrong conclusions that lead to wrong living that doesn't glorify God. I think with the story of David and Goliath, it's pretty easy and fairly common to just say, you know, obviously the main point is be a David and slay your giants, but that's not the main point. Um, it is uh, far deeper than that, and sadly, uh, this is, that's what this passage has been uh, minimized to uh, in a lot of settings, uh, really just a moral story about metaphorical giants and Davidic bra bravery because it's taken out of context. There's, there's really so much more to it. Um, I get to teach the fifth and sixth graders on Wednesday nights, Team Howard, and uh, it's our Howard Hendricks study on how to study the Bible. And what we've been talking about lately is what, what happens when you take verses out of context. And what you end up with is wrong conclusions, wrong thinking, wrong assumptions about what it says, which leads to wrong assumptions about what it means and how it really applies to your life. Um, you end up out of bounds. Biblically, rebuke is letting you know like when you're out of bounds and correction is how to come back in bounds. And a lot of times that correction is found just looking at context. Because if you don't have the context, you don't have the setting right, you just kind of pluck it out of the, out of the scriptures, um, you're going to end up going any number of different directions. An example of this would be, uh, we could take the story of Noah out of context, and we could conclude that all of us should be busy building our own arcs in preparation for the next worldwide flood. Right? It's raining, y'all should be very scared, right? Um, that, that's just taking it out of context. We, to think that Noah, be a Noah, build an ark. It's like be a David, slay your giants. It's just, it's really oversimplified and it loses the beauty and the luster of what's going on in the passage. Um, in the case of, of Noah and the ark, we would lose sight of what God's wrath is and how you can be saved from it and how in Christ you are saved from it. But we lose all that and we could actually end up expecting a worldwide flood again when in fact we were promised there would never be another flood like that. So context is really important and it's important in the... Uh, story of David and Goliath. So here's some context for us to consider before we look at main points and, and some application. Number one, this is a time, the context, the setting, this is a time of war and a time of transition for the people of Israel. A time of war and a time of transition. Um, God has a pattern of raising up leadership to continue to uh, save his people. And so we've had uh, the transitions we're looking at, there are priests, and then there are judges, and now we're transitioning to the time of the kings in the history of Israel. Saul is the first king, and David would be the second, a time of transition and a time of war. Uh, Mark Boda, in his book called uh, A Man After God's Own Heart, he says, human kingship was linked to war. In the previous chapter, or in the previous uh, few chapters, Israel requested a king. They wanted to have a king the way that all the other nations had a king. And so um, Mark, in his book, he says, human kingship was linked to war. Tired of their vulnerability among the nations, the people wanted to experience the military security that a human king with a standing army would bring. But Samuel, who, who was a judge and, and wise, Samuel's known as the kingmaker, so we're transitioning to kings, he's the kingmaker. He actually tells them, God has said to us, 
be careful what you ask for because the only way that a king is good is if he has an army. And the only way he's going to get an army is that's going to be your sons going to serve in that army. And that's actually what we see in the Valley of Elah with the Philistines and the Israelites. And what we find is that if we understand that this is a time of transition and we're moving to a time of kings, which was part of God's plan, he promised Abraham nations and kings would come from him. So it's part of God's plan, but it was also uh, something that the people wanted that they didn't really fully understand. What we will find is that David and Goliath is less about the differences between David and Goliath and far more about the differences between David and Saul. So that, that's a really important part of our time this morning is we're seeing the differences between King Saul and King David. And then it even gets weirder because David has like this private anointing where Samuel comes and anoints him as king before he goes out to the Valley of Elah where, David, where Goliath is and, and, the, and they're battling for, for land um, that, is, uh, that gives them benefit. Um, it's a weird time because he's been anointed as king, but he's not king. Saul is king, but Saul has lost the spirit. Saul has not moved in faith. Saul has been, he's taken a lot of liberties uh, with his leadership that kind of goes against showing that he has actual faith in, in God whom he serves under. And so what happens is that Saul will actually continue to serve for many years in his role as king. And David would have about 15 before he, he assumes his role as king. And then there, there's just a lot of um, a long transition, but that long transition serves to show the difference between David and Saul. So context is really, really important. So if we zoom out to get even more context, our first point of the morning is this. Long before David's epic battle with Goliath, God has been preparing and preserving a people for his own possession. This is not a battle where it's like, oh man, God's whole plan is going to go out the window if David doesn't save the day. That is not what is happening here. They are there because God has preserved a people through a number of leaders and a series of events over the course of generation after generation to bring the people Israel to this point. And I just want to take a minute to really go and enjoy the biblical narrative of how God has done the preserving of his people for his glory. Our story is the story of a people. So like when Stephen told the story, he shared his testimony in the book of Acts, and he said, my father Abraham, because he, he knew that his story was the story of people. If I asked you your testimony, you might say, well, when I was eight, I, I, I prayed a prayer, there was a, an invitation, but that's not actually when your story began. Your story began generations before. All of us sitting here could say, my father Adam really screwed things up in the garden. And that's how we can kind of start our testimony and move forward. Our story is the story of a people, and God would have to regularly raise up new leadership to rescue his people. This is how God has moved throughout the generations of his people. Our God preserved Adam and Eve in the garden. He preserved Noah and his family through a worldwide flood. This is part of your story. You're sitting here preserved this morning because these things happen. He preserved Noah and his family through a worldwide flood. He made a covenant with old Abraham, saying that nations and kings would come from him because God would preserve their offspring even through barrenness. God has a tendency to use the unlikely. His kingdom is largely seemingly contrary in so many ways, preserved through barrenness. God preserves Isaac by providing a ram in the thicket. God preserves Jacob through Esau's willingness to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup. In Genesis 35, God blesses Jacob and gives him a new name, which would be Israel. That's Jacob's new name. 
Israel's favorite son was Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his sorry, good-for-nothing brothers. And God ended up preserving in Israel's family, the very brothers that sold him, by bringing Joseph into the house of Pharaoh and providing him with incredible favor and his ability to interpret dreams. God is preserving and preparing a people. Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, literally says of Joseph, an Israelite, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? So the the faithfulness of God over time preserving has led to now in the kingdom of Egypt, the king is proclaiming God's goodness through Joseph. Just God is preserving. God is keeping a people. Then Pharaoh actually says to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh is so impressed by God's work in the life of Joseph that Pharaoh said, you know what? You're pretty good at this. You're in charge. Whatever he says, y'all do, but I'm still on the throne because of God's sustaining um, realities of his people. And it goes on. God continues to prepare and preserve. And when his brothers came to Egypt to buy grain, Joseph had the power to bless them and give them a safe place to live. And listen to what Genesis closes with. Genesis closes with Joseph saying the words, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people, God's people, many people, should be kept alive. We have to see this because we're not just jumping into a battlefield where everything's at stake and they could lose and Goliath is going to win and and David's got to save the day. No, no, God's been saving the day over and over, day after day, preserving a people and they wouldn't even exist if not for the work he had done. The new Pharaoh that comes along after Joseph dies is taking note of God's handiwork and keeping a people for his own possession. And in fact, he felt threatened by how incredibly kept the people were. And he says, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty. So there were such numbers and such might because of God's preservation that this Pharaoh was like, these people who don't even have a king are a huge threat to Egypt. That's how God has preserved his people through all of these different things. And then God preserves generation after generation after generation of Israelites that were taken captive in Egypt and forced into slavery. Even through slavery, God prepares and God preserves. There were people who were part of our story, your, your, your previous um, uh, uh, relatives who were born in captivity and who died in captivity who were born in captivity, who died in captivity, never do anything but slavery, but God preserved them so that you are here today as a church. It is absolutely remarkable. Even through slavery, God prepares and preserves. I think God preserves Moses through a little baby ark, uh, through the waters, and prepares Moses to lead his people, Israel, out of slavery. And God delivers them out of Egypt through plagues, and again delivers them from Pharaoh's army by parting the waters. You might be wondering, I thought we were talking about David and Goliath. There is a massive story of God's people that's been going on um, from the beginning of time that led us to this story. And we have to have the context for it to make sense. And in Exodus 15, I want us to see how God's people 
refer to God in this song. After they've been delivered, listen to how these people who don't have a king, um, they didn't have an army, but they were being pursued by an army. Listen to how they referred to God in Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3 and then verse 18. Just listen. This is their song, the song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Again in his book on uh, man after God's own heart, Mark Beto says that uh, ultimately God was their king because God was their warrior who would fight for them. That was, they had a king. They had God as their king, as he was their warrior who would fight for them. They didn't have to figure out weapons and make their own spears to figure out how to fight against Egypt. God was their king. He fought for them. He delivered them through the waters, closed the waters back up on an entire Egyptian army, and then they plundered them verbally. It's all crazy when God's involved, right? And so ultimately God was their king because God was the warrior who would fight for them. So it is the case as we come to this battle between Israel and the Philistines in the Valley of Elah. God was still their king and their warrior. God had preserved them to this point. They asked Samuel for an earthly king, but that didn't mean that God wasn't their king and their warrior. There's a lot going on here. And their first earthly king, the one they asked for, Saul, it's not going so well. That's our setting this morning. It is not going well. Saul, it says he's currently afraid and dismayed. Because our setting this morning is that he's on day 40 of Goliath defying him, Goliath defying his army, and Goliath defining the God of their army. Goliath is nine feet, nine inches tall, so he's really big, and he's a bully, right? I, I, it always bothers me when someone brags about something they don't have any control over, like height. Like, like Shaquille O'Neal's like really good at basketball. It's like, well, you're like 10 feet tall, right? Like, you don't have like a whole lot to do with the main part of that, right? Now, I'm not saying he didn't work hard, but uh, I'm just saying, like, that's kind of this bully mentality that Goliath has. He's, he's coming out, and he's like, I defy you. Come on, bring it. And, uh, and he is, he's big, and he's scary, and because of that, King Saul is scared. And he's on day 40 of this happening. So just, just imagine what that's like. He's the first king of Israel with this army. They got what they wanted. Day one, nine foot, nine inch Goliath comes out. It's like, fight me. The champion is the one who would come out between the battle lines to fight so that the, the battle maybe didn't have to happen. And so the champion, Goliath, comes out to fight. And on day one, he's like, I defy you in the name of my gods, pagan gods. I defy you. I defy your army. Bring me someone to fight. And if I win, we, we take over. If you win, you take over. Day one, and Saul doesn't fight. He, he kind of rolls over. And he's, I'm, I'm sure on day one, Saul's like, eh, this isn't what I had in mind for like my first you know, big battle scene you know, as a king of Israel. And then day two, same thing. Day eight, same thing. Day 22, same thing. Day 36, same thing. Day 40, same thing. Goliath coming out, taunting them, mocking them. And what we find is the people of God are following their leadership because their king, their earthly king, he's, he's dismayed and afraid. And all of the warriors of the, army, of the army of God are afraid and dismayed. And this is the setting where David enters the picture. And 
And it, it, I mean, it, you want it to be like Rudy, you know, the movie Rudy, Rudy, Rudy where, where like the little guy comes in and like, like saves the day because he's, he's so impressive. He's got this skill set and this heart. The reality is, is that David was not very impressive to anybody at first or ideal. Our second part of the morning is that David's military insignificance is seen in his role of delivering charcuterie boards to the war field. It's right there in 1 Samuel 17. Let me explain it. Um, in verse 17, Jesse said to David, his son, his three oldest sons are, seemed fit for war. They're, they're, they're battling with Saul, and David's back home. He, he's a shepherd, and, he's, and he helps with things around the house, and apparently uh, good charcuterie boards because we see it right here. Jesse said to David, his son, take your brothers an ephah of this parched grain. So first we have multiple grains. And these ten loaves, so we have like loaves and crackers, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses, guys, it's obvious, ten cheeses, to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, bring something back. So you got the cheeses, you got the grains, you got the breads and crackers. I'm sure there was like Middle East, there's hummus involved, I'm almost positive. This was a charcuterie board. That was David's role that morning. The morning of him speaking against God, his role was, be careful, son, taking the cheeses to your brothers. It, it just seems so unimpressive. First Samuel, uh, in 1 Samuel, we see that um, when he gets there, it doesn't go well. He hears Goliath, and David's like, who's this uncircumc uncircumcised Philistine who defies the armies of the living God? What will be done for the one who takes the reproach away from, from this guy? Uh, from, from Israel because of this guy. And, uh, and his brother, I love this interaction. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men asking what I just said. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? David's like, hey, shepherd brother, where are the sheep? Why are you talking about Goliath? And then he says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. Like that escalated quickly. His older brother is like, you have an evil heart. That's why you're here. And I love the back and forth. It's just like a big brother, a little brother. David said, what have I done now? Like how many times have your kids like, what, what can we ever win? What have I done now? He says, well, what have I done now? And David said, uh, was it not but a word? And then he turned away from his brother toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him. His brother accuses him of evil. When it goes forward, Saul says that he's just too young. And then when he finally stands before Goliath, Goliath says, Am I a dog that you would bring me sticks? So nothing super impressive about David in the text. And here's what we have to see this morning for any of this to really make sense. God wasn't there to help David win David's battle, but to bring David into God's battle in the role that he had for him. God wasn't, it wasn't like they woke up and it's like, God's like, today's a big day for David. I got to show up to help David win David's battle. But rather, God is bringing David into God's battle that has been going on since the beginning of time. And he's bringing him into it. Look at 1 Samuel 17, 26. Let's kind of dig into this narrative a little bit more. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for this man who kills the Philistine and takes away? God has turned David's attention to Goliath. And David's looking around going, this doesn't add up. I'm, the armies of the living God are cowering in fear. And this guy is speaking against God. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. And David is troubled by it. God has turned David's attention where God wants his attention to be. Who will, uh, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away 
the reproach from Israel. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And look down at verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and sent to, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, little David says to tall Saul, Saul was a head above everybody else. That's why he was a leader, because he was tall. He didn't have much to brag about there. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. David says to Saul, let, don't let your heart fail. Don't let anyone in the army of God, don't let their hearts fail because of Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. It's fairly unexpected, right? The shepherd boy says, uh, Saul, King Saul, tall King Saul, don't let your heart be troubled. I'll go, I'll go fight with Goliath. And Saul said to David, you're not able. What if it just ended there? What if we just assumed that Saul sitting there bleeding out of fear and, and uh, in dismay that you're not able, David, what if it just ended there? Thank God it didn't. He said, you're not able to go fight, to go uh, against the Philistine. And Saul's just working with what he can see. He says, you can't fight him because you're a youth. And Goliath has been a man of war from his youth. And then look at verses 31 through 37. Keep going. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. That's a funny line, right? Wasn't he a shepherd like this morning? He's like, your servant used to keep sheep. I'm moving up in the world, right? It's like uh, my son, when he was around like five or six years old, he started using the phrase, when I was a kid, I used to uh, do that too. It was like, no, no, you're, you're still very much a kid. And so he's like, I used to be, uh, keep sheep for my father. It was like, that's what he was doing that morning. It's just a funny line. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And then listen, just listen to this. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock... I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if the lion or the bear rose up against me, I caught him by his beard and struck and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. What we're seeing here is David is comforting Saul by saying, I can kill Goliath, but that's not what like, makes me able to be here. So what we're going to see, like he's, he's comforting Saul by saying, no, actually this isn't a bad idea, but that's not his credentials. What are his credentials or what he says next? He says, the Philistines should be like one of them. For, why does David care? Here's why David cares. He has defied the armies of the living God. The Philistine has defied the armies of the living God. The bear and the lion uh, defied my father when they tried to take the sheep. And this Goliath is doing the same thing, and it will be his, his end will be the same, because God, the Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David's not there as some kind of a boss. David's there as one who's being delivered by God from the hand of the Philistine. And he cares about it because the Philistine has defied the armies of the living God. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Jump down to verse 42. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I've always wondered if, like, Goliath said ruddy and handsome, like how that got there. But he was ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Like if a dog attacks you, you just take a stick and, you know, fight it off. He's like, Am I a dog that you come to me with the, 
stick named David. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine has his own pagan lowercase g gods, and he curses David by those gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Goliath is speaking to David the same way he's been speaking to the armies of the living God and to Saul. He's saying, I'm going to embarrass you. Like, one of the, the only thing worse than dying in battle is not being buried during this time. For the birds and the wild to devour your body after you die in battle is the greatest dishonor. So Goliath is saying, I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to kill you, I'm going to dishonor you, and everyone's going to see it. All your, all your people are going to see the dishonor I'm about to bring upon you. And David responds, says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. The God of the armies of Israel. David is still very aware of the presence of God. He says, You come to me with the, the weapons, I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Goliath, your, your problem is that you defied the Lord. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Like, it just escalates real fast, right? Like, I'm just going to strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. And then you know what else? Um, I'm going to cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And so he's saying, you're saying you're going to kill me, and everyone's going to see the birds eat me. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut off your head, and then I'm going to kill everybody else, and all the birds are going to eat all of your friends. I mean, got pretty serious. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's David's aim. David's not, this isn't bravado, this isn't David sort of making a power play. David's saying, no, no, no. The whole point of this day, when I'm done doing what I said I'm going to do, is that the, the, the nations will know that there is a God in Israel. This scared army, will, there will be no mistake as if, some, as if maybe God has left them. There is a God in Israel, and you will know it today. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. He knows his story is a story of the people. Of the people. He will give you into our hand. God will deliver you into our hand. The point is not that it's a big day for David. The point is that David is there in the name of the Lord of hosts, who is the God of the armies of Israel. Goliath has defied God, and now all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel, for the battle is the Lord's. David knew when he woke up this morning, that morning that the battle is the Lord's. If it doesn't belong to the Lord, it's hopeless. And David knew that. It might seem obvious, but I think it needs to be stated as we try to really understand what's going on here. David was dependent upon God. This is a picture of faith. He has faith in God, not just faith in his abilities, faith in being smart, faith in his, his, uh, his sling. David is dependent upon God, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And what I want you to see is David points back to times he's been previously delivered, really hard times in life. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever fought a bear or a lion and grabbed them by the beard and struck them. Well, like, that'd be like a moment you don't really forget, right? Like, like, it was a crazy morning when I grabbed the lion by a beard. It was a crazy morning when that bear came in and I had to strike him. Like, those are like moments of like, 
They're, we call those near-death experiences, and generally we don't forget about them, right? And sometimes we feel like those hard things that we've gone through wound us, and all they are is really bad for us. But this is what David draws upon. He says, the Lord delivered me then. I'm still alive. The Lord will deliver me here. His faith is in God's ability, not his own. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I think it's a good reminder for us that the things that we thought maybe only hurt us or the things that we thought only damaged us. You ever had seasons in your life where you look back and you're like, that aged me. Like COVID, you're like, that year aged me seven years. Like when we had toddlers, I was like, I feel like I aged 10 years with one of those toddlers, right? Like there's things that age, it just feels hard. Or you go through things that are just confusing and difficult and you're like, man, this was just hard. All this did was take a toll on me. It took a chunk out of me and it left me not what I was before. But there's an encouragement here that those things might actually be the very things that helped us to learn how completely dependable our God is even when others aren't. Those things, they didn't ju- they're not just there to hurt you. They're not there for your bad. They're there for your good. They're not just there to make less of you, but to make much of God through you. And we learn that God is dependable when we live through such things over and over again. I want you to notice that Saul was not dependent upon God. From day one of the taunting, he goes into fear and dismay. He was not dependent upon God. He was afraid and dismayed while David was bold. God's purpose is to see the differences between Saul, who's not moving in faith, and David, who is moving in faith. The difference was that Saul was focused on the circumstances while David was focused on God. Saul's focused on the giant while David is focused on God. Saul was scared, but David was angry. A righteous and holy anger came over David. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? Like, what if we got mad every now and again and started referring to people as uncircumcised Philistines, right? They'd be like, whoa, what's going on there? Why are they upset? Well, God was being defied. The truth and reality of the presence of God with the armies of God was being laid waste. And he's like, no, no, no. We're going to make sure reality comes through very clearly today. David was angry in a righteous and holy way. And really what it looks like, it's, it's as though David is looking at the Lord's army and they all just need to be reminded that they're the Lord's army. It reminds me of Paul in Romans 7 where Paul says, um, uh, wretched man that I am. I, he's talking about his flesh and he says, sometimes I do the very things that I don't want to do and the things I do want to do, I don't do those things. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God in Jesus Christ who delivers us. And what Paul is saying is like, in those moments where you're, you're moving in a way that is not in keeping with who God is, that's just not who you are. That's not who you are. And so in this moment, I'm reminded of Paul in Romans 7, where David is in front of the armies of the living God, essentially saying, this isn't who you are. You're the armies of the living God. You currently exist because God has sustained you through generation after generation. We're in this valley. It's just a, it's just a valley, but you're the armies of the living God. He is present with us, and all will know that he is here. There's a major difference between David and Saul. So he's reminding them of who they are. And then there's this, just this marked change that happens. There's, there's, you may have heard a phrase like, so goes the leadership, so goes the church, or so goes the business, or so whatever it might be, that leadership does set a tone. Saul was fearful and dismayed. The armies of the living God were fearful and dismayed. 
David was not fearful and dismayed. He was confident in the Lord. And look at what happens after this battle. Verses 48 through 52. There's a marked change. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So, superior artillery here. There's a a stone that goes, and it essentially goes into his brain, through the forehead. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. It wasn't by a sword that this happened. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. This is the part that we don't have in like the children's coloring sheets. I'm working on a new coloring book for this story that's more true to the word of God. He cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and that this little dude cut his head off, they ran. They fled. And the men of Israel and Judah, all of a sudden there's a major change in the armies of the living God when they're following a leader who is humble and confident in the Lord's abilities. Look what happens. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout. It's like this gladiator moment. They can take our country, but they can't take our freedom. And they just like rush in and they go and it says, they raised with a shout and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. They plundered their camp and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Little David just carrying around, like he's nine foot nine. The average head's like eight pounds. I'm assuming that's like 11 or 12 pound head. And little David just like, yep. Still got it, and he just takes it all the way to Jerusalem. And there's a major difference. Why? Because there's victory. David's aim was the glory of God because why? There is a God in Israel. That is what is going on in this story. There is a God in Israel, and David did not forget it. The Lord raised him up, used the unlikely, and moved him in a way, preserved him in a way, provided for him in a way that All would know, the whole earth would know that there is a God in Israel and the battle belongs to the Lord. I think some some application for us to consider this morning. Number one, look to King Jesus, the Messiah and the Christ from the lineage of David. In Matthew, um, we actually see David's name mentioned immediately as we look at the genealogy of Jesus. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now we could spend a whole month or more talking about how the Davidic kingship led to Jesus, but trust me this morning, that, that's the point. Uh, Jesus is, is a better David, and uh, Jesus is the one that we need to look to. And here's what it says in verses 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the child from the Holy Spirit. So the same spirit that was upon David and his anointing is upon this pregnancy. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as she considered these, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. There's David again. It's all pointing to Jesus. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from
from their sins. In the, save, in the same way we saw David as a warrior and a champion, so Jesus is our warrior and champion when it comes to needing to be saved from our sin. There is no other way. You cannot save yourself. In the same way that David led Israel according to faith in God, so Jesus saves us from our sin through faith that we receive as a gift. The second point of application is that in Christ, you, the church, become a royal nation of priest kings. Like, that's your role. Do you see that? David was anointed as a king, and y'all are kings sitting here. Y'all are priests sitting here. It's a remarkable reality what God is currently doing through the church. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 through 10 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God has been preserving this people for ages and ages, and you sit here today as a people for his possession of priest kings, a royal priesthood that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. You're here to proclaim the excellencies of God who saves in Jesus. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The spirit that rested upon David at his anointing, the spirit that rested upon Christ at his baptism, is the spirit that is coming to the church and rests upon you today, and I just hope that you see the significance of it. Let that guide you. Let that temper how you act in situations and how you respond to threats or how you respond to uncertainty or if anything that might bring fear or dismay. It, guide, it guides us um, in a way to where we are resting soundly in the Lord. As a royal uh, priesthood, the church now has the responsibility of being a warrior and a champion for God's glory through proclamation of the gospel to lost souls and to each other day after day after day. The only way forward is complete dependence upon God, which is humility. David had great humility in the massively significant thing that he did on the battlefield in the Valley of Elah. And in Philippians 2, I'm going to close with these verses reminding us of the humility of Christ. We're to be dependent upon God and prideful people are not dependent upon God. God humbles us that we can be dependent upon him. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then it says this about us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, in light of what God has done, in light of dependence upon God, in a humble way, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It is God. God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The battle is the Lord's. Let's pray.
Lord, we're thankful for our time this morning. Um, I pray that we would see this really big, grand sweep of Scripture through history and your pattern of redemption, and that we would find ourselves sitting here as the result of a God who cares deeply about his glory and the good of his people. We are humbled by your goodness towards us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.